Hi, Wool Academy Podcast listeners. This is the Wool Academy Podcast and you're listening to episode 115. Welcome to the show. In today's episode, I am joined by Leslie Pryor. Leslie is a merino sheep breeder based in the UK. And in fact, she has already been a guest on the show in episode number two. So if you're interested to listen to that, I invite you to go back uh, to a show uh, three years ago. But today I'm talking with her not so much about her wool, but more about her breeding practice under the brand Tellenby and her vision of having a larger flock across Europe of merino sheep. So I do hope you enjoy this episode and I talk to you again at the end. Well, Leslie, it's such a pleasure to have you once again on the Wool Academy podcast. Uh, you were one of the very, very first uh, people I interviewed and I'm very thankful for you for bearing with me at the, at the very beginnings of where I was <laughs> figuring things out. But for those people who've only now joined the Wool Academy podcast, uh, I would like to ask you to give a short introduction about yourself. Okay, well, thank you, Elizabeth. It's a great pleasure to be back and to talk to you again. And my goodness, haven't you come a long way <laughs> since my first interview? Uh, well, as you say, my name is Leslie Pryor and I farm merino sheep in the UK. So that makes me very unusual. Um, and not only are they merinos, but they're super fine merinos and based very much on Australian genetics. Uh, we didn't start like that. Uh, we've been in existence for about 15 years now. And we, we began with uh, a very poor selection of merino sheep that were already here in the UK, which I was asked to take on at the end of a government research project. And that was the beginning of my Merino journey, really. And 15 years later, uh, we are where we are today, which is with a, a flock of about 300 growing every year and selling our wool to, direct to retailers and being pressed heavily to provide more of it every year. <laughs> so that gives you an idea of who we are. Yeah, in our, in our first episode, we talked more about kind of the wool side of your business. And back then you had your brand Beaumont. That's right. I think, yeah. And now you you focus more on your brand Tellenby, which is That's right. about the breeding of the merino yep. sheep. Yeah, well, the, the Beaumont brand is reserved now for my work with my retailer. Uh, it's a trademarked brand and I own that, but it, it is specifically reserved for the wool that goes out to them. But as you're quite right, we have developed uh, a different brand because we felt we wanted to concentrate on the breeding of the sheep with a view to increasing Merino in Europe and also continuing to develop the sheep into the very best animals that we could to thrive in our conditions and in Europe generally. Yeah, and maybe let's uh, go back. You already said a little bit about how you started, but um, maybe let's dive in a little bit more in detail. So 15 years ago, how many sheep did you start out with? Oh, very small numbers. I had, I think it was 10 ewes and two rams. 
And I also had access to some genetics in the freezer, which was fortunate because I didn't have enough really to make a start. Uh, the, the animals I had came from a research project that the Scottish government had been working on for a long time. They'd made some serious mistakes, I realize now, in how they went about things. And the first mistake was in the type of sheep that they were using to found their, pro their project on. They, they were not really suitable for the UK. They were very small. They were very unproductive. The wool was very, very fine. It was beautiful, but it was highly colored. It was very yellowy. It wasn't bright white. And the fleeces were very open. So they parted as you looked at a sheep along its back line, there was a distinct parting of the fleece. And of course that lets rain in. And when that happens, the wool becomes uh, damaged. So uh, we had a very unpromising start, but I didn't realize that at the time <laughs> because I knew nothing about sheep. I had a cashmere goat flock and I was asked to take on the sheep uh, because the, the project was closing and I didn't really want to do it. So I took them on really as a, an act of mercy because otherwise 20 years of work would have disappeared. So uh, it was really a, a, a steep learning curve for me. Um, and more by luck than judgment, I began to select within that group and very quickly realized that I had a long way to go and I needed to look for some outside help and with some help from um, IWTO and AWI, I was introduced to people in Australia and the rest is history really. They were so helpful and so kind. And we made our first import of genetics from Australia in 2012 and we've carried on importing ever since. So we now have an Australian Merino flock rather than the sheep that I started with. And the difference is phenomenal everything about the sheep is so much better uh, and they do very well here they're remarkably good in our conditions have you ever done like a, you know your original sheep and your sheep now next to each yeah. other yeah 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 i mean you can see it very clearly i have one old ewe mm -hmm. left who is still actually in the breeding flock because she is uh, a very good type of sheep. She's a very pure looking Saxon Merino, very small, not very productive, but she's beautiful of her type. So she sits in the flock alongside the modern Australian Merinos. And really when you look at them, there's a vast difference in size. She's got little bald legs, um, very tiny. She looks just like a little rare breed native sheep from somewhere. And compare that with the other ewes I have now, and it, it's incredible. The difference is amazing in just 15 years. Mm. Well, and you just said that you started Talent B kind of with that vision of creating, you know, or having more merino sheep in Europe. Give us a little bit of an overview of what is the situation actually of merino sheep in Europe, because originally they come from Europe. Yes, absolutely. They come from the Iberian Peninsula, from Spain, and before that, from North Africa. Uh, there are still large numbers of merinos in Spain, and there are, in fact, merino in nearly every other European country, except the UK. There are no 
long long-standing flocks of merino in the UK but the the history of merino in the rest of Europe is continuous from a very long time ago so um, it's very difficult to know how many there are all I can tell you is that from my recent researches there are at least 16 types of merino sheep in Europe they are not uh, uniform they're not homogeneous there are many different types of sheep that bear the name merino not all of them are producing particularly fine wool many of them in fact are producing quite coarse wool uh, many of them have been pushed in the meat direction there are a few where they are concentrating on wool so it's not a homogeneous group. It's difficult to say that there is one European Merino. That, that certainly is not the case. There are many different strains in different countries. Um, yes, there are many different types, many different strains of Merino uh, based on the geography of where they are in Europe and also the selection pressures within each country. Spain has probably the most authentic, original type of Merino. Uh, the other place I would like to explore in more detail is in fact Germany, because of course, Saxon Merino was developed in Saxony and Brandenburg in Germany, and then went across to Australia and Tasmania, and ultimately to New Zealand, and formed the basis of our really superfine wool flocks. And those sheep, I think, no longer exist in Germany, but I would like to be proved wrong. I would like to think there are a few, but who knows? We, we just don't know. I can't tell you how many there are, and there is no uh, national organization in each country. Spain has a national merino organization, and there is something similar in France, but every other country doesn't appear to have a national organization. So we don't really know, is the simple answer. And what exactly defines a merino sheep? Well, you tell me. <laughs> That's the problem. I define merino in the same way as an Australian does, and that is the characteristic look, but the animal is chiefly defined by its wool. It's the wool that defines the sheep. Yes, it has to be from a known merino provenance, but it's not defined in a way by its looks. It's defined by the wool on its back. There are certain attributes of merino wool which will only be found within merinos. They won't be found in a, a British Scotch blackface sheep or a valet sheep or anything else. So it's the wool that defines the animal and also some sort of provenance of belonging to merino. So is it's that, very, for example, the crimp of the wool? It's the crimp, it's the look, it's the style, it's the colour, and uh, just the overall quality and the handle of the wool. And of course, the fineness, the, the micron. Mm -hmm. It has to be really below about 24 micron to be classed as merino. Okay. And you said that there are some breeding pressures. What would that be? Uh, it's... Largely, the, the pressure has, say, for in, in, in Germany, is for meat production. So the merino in Germany is now a meat-producing animal, and wool is now the byproduct. And that wool is very variable in quality. I remember being shown some, uh, some German merino, 
which was sold to one of our well-known European processing firms. And the, the uh, processor brought it to me when he visited here to show me the Merino. And it was not Merino as you and I would recognize. It was really poor, very poor quality, very colored, no crimp at all in the wool, but it was still fine. It was mm -hmm. about 23 microns. So it just about qualified as Merino on fineness, but much of the other characteristics of Merino were not there. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so the pressure in Germany, for example, is to make a meat sheep. Um, in other places, the pressures have been to make a sheep that is a dual purpose animal that will produce meat and wool. And in a few places, as in Spain and um, Portugal, there is pressure to produce milk because mm -hmm. merino, merino cheese, making merino milk into cheese is a big source of income. So they are very keen to produce more sheep that produce more milk. And again, the wool quality is at risk of suffering. But what I understand is like from your standpoint of view, Merino sheep are very well suited also to live in Europe. While oh. like there's a general understanding, no, Merino sheep are more suited for Southern hemisphere where it's very hot, where it doesn't rain much. Mm. And like in general, we would have in Europe more very coarse wool so maybe explain a little bit like what is the misunderstanding here or what's yeah I, I you know I really don't understand this because you're quite right you know this is what you get told whenever I talk to somebody in the UK who produces sheep or perhaps in northern Europe and I say I produce merino they say oh you can't grow merino in the UK it's impossible they will never cope with the weather their feet will be bad uh, the wool will go bad you can't do it it's not true because I say again about the Saxon merinos in Germany they produced the most wonderful wool we had of flocks of Saxon Merinos in the UK right up until the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, we were exporting rams from the UK to Australia and to Tasmania as late as 1890. We had buyers coming over specifically to buy rams from flocks in the UK. They were that good. So there is absolutely no reason. We have a history of top quality Merino production in Europe. It has to be the right type. There is no good, for example, using um, the modern South Australian type Merino uh, and producing a flock of pure South Australian sheep to live in my part of England. That won't work because the wool quality is different. It's beautiful but it's not really suitable for high rainfall. So you have to pick your strains of Merino very carefully. If you do that, then they're fine. And we have good examples around the world of Merinos living in very diverse environments. I mean, you look at Merinos in Patagonia, which is cold and dry. And then Uruguay, also in South America, is very warm, very much warmer and a much higher rainfall, 800 mil plus each year. Uh, and they exist very happily in a diverse range of environments. You do have to get the genetics right, though, and the correct strain. Uh, the wrong strain, and it's a disaster. 
So and what is wool for high rainfall? Like how do I need to imagine that it's different to wool that doesn't do well with rain? It's to do with the structure of the fleece really. Uh, you know, I said to you earlier about the original sheep that I had, the wool was very open, the fleece parted easily so that wool could penetrate, uh, water could penetrate and damage the wool. It um, would cause fleece rot and uh, cause the wool to become discolored and alter the value of the wool. So what you do is you breed for density so that the wool is very, very resistant to rain. Um, and you also have a waxy tip on the wool. And fortunately, that goes very well with the particular type of wool I want, which is this superfine based on Saxon genetics. It works very well. It keeps the rain up beautifully. Mm. So we don't have any problem. Okay, that sounds, yeah, those details are interesting. I, I don't know, I didn't know about that. Yeah. And you, you, I mentioned to you that I'm now in, involved in Albania and we're trying to, yes, the, yes, you know, give the growers there a source, an additional source of income for their wool. And of course, we encountered their very, very coarse wool, like above 40 mm. uh, micron. And then when we talked to growers, you know, oh, could we like, you know, do something to make the wool finer? Because of course, there's a little bit more demand for fine wool. Then, you know, they were a little bit resistant, like, no, like, you know, our sheep are herdy and they need to go up the mountain and so on. So are those arguments that, you know, merino sheep can't go up the mountain and they oh, need no. too much food or? No, merino sheep would go very happily up mountains. Uh, they still practice transhumance in Spain, for example. It's less than it used to be, but the sheep still move from the lowland areas up to the mountains in the summer to graze on the pastures. So that system still exists in Europe. Mm -hmm. So the merino is perfectly well adapted to that kind of life. I, I wouldn't hesitate to uh, to have a go, try it. Mm. Uh, if if the shepherds are prepared to try it, then then yes, by all means. Not all strains of merino, definitely not. But the ones that are used to going on transhumance already should be fine mm -hmm. because it's it's what they do anyway. Okay, so you in a sense you're saying there's like sh merino sheep that can adapt, like or that are suitable for all different times. Yes, of you just need to make sure you get the right one. Right one. Yes, I, I like to say a merino for all reasons and all seasons. That's that's my catchphrase. You know, you can <laughs> you can you can find yourself a merino for every possible use. And you can also find one that will suit every type of environment. You just need to know where to look and what you're looking for. And you mentioned that you have this vision of, you know, expanding merino sheep throughout Europe. So why do you have that vision and why do you think it's important or of value? Um, for the well, I think you have just said one of the most important reasons for it, really, which is that in your work with the Albanian shepherds, you are trying to find a way of increasing the value for their wool. And that is a common problem throughout Europe. We have a lot of sheep farmers who are producing probably too much lamb and mutton meat. And we need to find alternative income sources for them. Certainly here in the UK, we have far too much sheep meat. And after Brexit, we don't know what's going to happen. But we're not alone in that. There are other countries in Europe where the meat industry is a little bit uncertain. So if we could increase the value of wool, that would be ideal. Uh, and 
Merino is a way of doing that. Uh, it's always, a, always going to be popular. There will always be a demand for very fine wool where there isn't always a demand for very coarse wool. There's a much more limited application for the coarsest wools. So there is some logic to trying to fine up the flock of Europe, I think. Mm. And you mentioned you started with around 10 ewes and now yes. your flock is around 300. But yeah. over 15 years, you did produce more than up to 300. And that's because yeah. you also, of course, sold some of your sheep. Yeah. So where did your sheep go? Uh, they've gone to Romania, to Switzerland, to Austria. Uh, where else have they gone? And the Netherlands. So we have four countries at the moment and more people are interested. So there is a great interest in it. And what uh, have you heard back so far? How, how oh, they're very, very happy with them. Uh, mm. I get regular updates from everybody and it, so far it all seems to be working very well. The reason they like to buy from me is because if they buy direct from Australia, it's a little more difficult. You can only buy genetics. You can't import live animals from Australia. And the problem is you don't know what you're going to get until it arrives on the ground as a lamb. And then you have to grow it. And it may well not, in fact, be what you want. If you bypass that stage and buy direct from me, you're buying Australian genetics, but you're buying animals that have already been trialed in the UK. So if they do okay for me, then they're going to be all right in other areas of Europe with similar conditions. So that's why it seems to be working well. We don't sell many because I need my sheep. I, I, turn, I turn down more people than I actually agree to work with simply because I don't have enough. Mm. Uh, we obviously have natural wastage as well. You know, sheep die, they get old, whatever. So um, we, we never have too many. And I had an email from somebody a few days ago saying, can I buy two of your surplus sheep? And I emailed back and said, well, sorry, I don't have any surplus sheep. I, <laughs> I need all of my sheep. <laughs> I know what he meant. You know, he thought I would have had some that, I, that weren't quite good enough. But we have refined our breeding so well that virtually everything that's born is good and we're very happy with. So there's very little that isn't suitable for breeding. And you need uh, your size of a flock because you do have um, contracts with retailers who every year uh, want to buy your wool. Yes, that's right. And, and want to buy more. Mm. And I really need more sheep. So every year we're increasing numbers. Mm, that's a wonderful problem to have. <laughs> yes, yes, it is. <laughs> it is, yeah. Yeah, and there's another topic I want to talk with you about. Um, and we just kind of, merged into the topic of retailers and um, there's a very nice presentation that you gave um, as part of the digital item to congress where you spoke also about your work uh, with your european merino sheep and you mentioned in that presentation that you've been before corona broke out you've been <laughs> at the end of january beginning of february at the ispo fair um, which is the International Sports and Outdoor Fair. And you were invited as a speaker and you 
talked about your your um, work and afterwards you had a lot of interest and discussions with different uh, retailers and brands uh, tell us a little bit about the type of conversations you had with these retailers right yes well i think the first thing was that they were very surprised that merino was being grown in europe and they were really pleased absolutely delighted And I had one big well-known name immediately say to me, can we buy your, your wool? And I had to say, no, I'm sorry, no. <laughs> I, I, not at the moment, maybe, maybe in another year or so when I'm a bit bigger. Uh, but there, there was this real enthusiasm for European grown, good quality, top quality, mind, Merino, of a known quality. Uh, they were very interested in the genetics, they wanted to know the micron, they wanted to know the type of wool, uh, the volume and all sorts of questions which obviously I could answer. Um, but the reason was traceability. They loved the idea of being able to come and visit the farm regularly, to be able to tell the story direct from sheep to garment and to prove that proper connected chain every link of the way because it's so much easier to do that in europe where okay we might be a thousand miles apart but it's still a lot closer than australia or new zealand or uruguay so that was the main thing and then also there was a great deal of interest in animal welfare issues Uh, one of the first questions they asked me was, do I mules my sheep? Mm -hmm. And the, the answer, of course, is no, because it, it isn't legal in Europe. And it's not something we have ever needed to do. Not that we don't have fly strike. We do. It's a constant threat. But it's not something that we wanted to do. And it would not be legal in the UK or anywhere else in Europe. So we had discussions about that. Uh, we had also discussions about tailing, when you take the tail off the sheep, and also castration of ram lambs. And they asked me very direct and searching questions about why we do these things, how we do them. And uh, they were very satisfied with the answers that I gave. But That was quite a surprise to me. I was expecting questions about musing. I was not expecting the questions about tailing and castration so much. Brands are very, very aware of all of the welfare issues surrounding sheep. And I think if we focus on musing alone, we're missing a trick here. They've actually moved on from that. And they're now looking at all the other issues where there may be a, a, a mutilation or a surgical intervention in sheep. And we have yeah. to be aware of that. Yeah, I noticed that as well when attending different events uh, where retailers attended as well, that the discussion got more diversified and more, you mm. know, detailed and, and it's not only musing anymore, it's it's much more varied and, and they retailers and brands are much more educated now. Yeah. about the differences or nuances mm. and would you mind giving us also the answers that you gave to the retailers because you said you yes. were satisfied with what you yes said. of course yes well i let's talk about tailing castration mm -hmm. uh, castration is not so difficult in a way because uh my i keep more rams 
without castrating them than many other people. Because we're a breeding unit, I, I, I keep most of my rams. There are very few that I castrate at birth. If I do castrate them, we give pain relief. We do two types of pain relief. One before they have the application of a little rubber ring and then one after as well. So they don't feel it when it happens and they don't feel it for three days afterwards either because we keep them topped up. We give them two injections. And this is a protocol that I have worked out with my vet and we have done it by trial and error. It's not cheap. It costs me a good deal of money each year and it's a lot of time and a lot of work. But every ram lamb is castrated using this method that I have to castrate. Uh, and then tails, we do the same thing. There is no tailing on this property without pain relief. And again, there are two injections, one before we, we give them the little ring on their tail, and that's an anesthetic, a local anesthetic. And then after the process, they have a long acting injection, which kills pain for up to three days. And the reason I do it is the castration is obvious. If, if the animal is going to stay, but is not going to be bred from, then he has to live with his mother and his sisters and his cousins and his aunties and everybody else. <laughs> and he lives a long, very productive, very happy life on the farm. And the alternative for him would be to send him to slaughter to eat. Well, that is not good. I think if I was the ram lamb, I would sacrifice my testicles to live <laughs> for another six years, uh, seven years even. And the females taking the tails off, we have actually tried this for two years. We have left tails. And this again was with my vet's help. Uh, we decided that for two years we would leave the tails and not take them off. And it was very much a disaster. We tried to keep the sheep very clean by shearing them, but when you let sheep out onto fresh grass in the spring, they will automatically tend to have diarrhea because the grass is very fresh and very lush. So they produce a lot of liquid feces and that scatters all around the tail. Now, you can catch every sheep and wash it with a hose pipe, <laughs> but that takes forever and you will never catch every one. If you don't catch them straight away, then all of that sets around their tail and becomes really, really hard to remove. And then when your shearer comes to shear them, I have seen this happen. He shears and however hard he tries, he takes skin off sometimes with the shear and he gets upset. I get upset and the sheep gets upset and my vet didn't like it either. So we agreed that that was it. We would not do that anymore. It was kinder to the sheep to remove the tail. And we tried all sorts of things. We, mm -hmm. we, we sheared the tails every three weeks. Um, we, we, we did. We did try really hard because we didn't want to have to tail them. But for the moment, I can't find a way around it. It may be that with more selective breeding, I might be able to reduce the soiling uh, and that's something I'm looking at. I'm also looking at tail lengths. Every lamb that is born, as soon as it's born, I record the length of the tail, where it is on the back leg. So whether it's above the, uh, the hock or on the hock or below the hock, and that's all recorded every year. 
So if it's possible at all, I will try to breed for animals that have a shorter tail. But at the moment, that doesn't look likely. Nobody is coming up with a short tail. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> has a, a long, long tail. Oh. Some of them get, have tails almost down to the ground. You know? Okay. <laughs> so that's a long explanation, Elizabeth. I'm sorry. But, uh, no, but it, it's it, interesting um, to, to <laughs> understand those details because otherwise you just generalize, you know, tail docking mm. is bad. But if you don't yeah. understand... Well, I think it shows that... It. I think it shows that I am aware of the issues and I don't like it anymore than you do or any of my retailers do but until I can find a better way and I am I am looking I constantly look for my welfare for my sheep's welfare at the moment I think it's better to remove the tail the other issue of course is I look after my sheep very well if I sell them I hope that they go to somebody who will look after them very well but what happens to them once they leave my farm is out of my hands. And I think if I send them out with a tail, that is adding an extra risk to the life of that sheep. And perhaps I shouldn't do that because mm. I don't know where that sheep will end up ultimately. And he or she may suffer because he has a tail or she has a tail. So for the moment, I think the responsible thing to do is to remove the tails. Yeah. And you mentioned also that you do have fly strike. So explain to me, like, in what circumstances do you get fly strike and, and what do you do then when that happens? Right. Well, we, we are very lucky because we have it very well controlled. We very rarely actually have strike, but that's because we have uh, every season we have at least 25 fly strike, fly traps around the sheep paddocks. Uh, we we spend a lot of money every year buying fly traps and that helps it, it helps by warning us when the fly season is starting when the weather becomes humid and thundery and hot it's usually in the beginning of may for us here in the uk and the season goes right on until october so it's a long fly season here and we are aware of these flies around from the traps as soon as that happens, we will spray the sheep with a protective chemical. And as necessary, we will also uh, crutch them. We'll clean up the back ends with shears and we will reapply a short-acting chemical on the areas that we, we crutch. So we're very vigilant. We don't, we don't want them to get fly strike. And every sheep is checked at least twice a day. So we know we walk around them and we are very, very familiar with the early symptoms. So if anybody is showing signs of anxiety because of flies, we're aware of that. And we would act straight away to, to gather that sheep up and look at it and treat it if it was necessary. Okay. Good. And one other thing that I noticed in, in your presentation, you said, okay, these issues is one topic that retailers are interested in, but they're also interested in kind of the general good life of a sheep. And they're asking you, you know, how do you know if your sheep are happy and how do you know if your sheep are unhappy? So I would also like to know what is the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, that's, that's a matter of being a good shepherd. Every good shepherd knows when his sheep or her sheep are happy because you know your sheep very well. Uh, you observe them every day. You know what is normal for them. You know when they're content because they're quiet. That's the first thing. They're very quiet. 
they're grazing, they're eating, they're chewing the cud, they're lying down, they're talking to each other quietly in a group. You know very well when something is upsetting them or they're worried. Uh, it's always interesting to me, for example, when I have visitors, I mean, I can walk in among my sheep with little problem. They'll move aside, but they won't run away from me. But if I bring a visitor, I know how that visitor is around animals by the way that my sheep will respond. If that person is naturally quiet and at ease with animals, then the sheep will take no notice because I'm with them, they're not worried. But if that person is making a lot of noise, is clearly not in tune with the way animals behave, the sheep will respond accordingly. They become anxious, they're a little more flighty, they try and get away. So I think the answer to your question, Elizabeth, is observation and good shepherding skills, recognizing what is normal and what is abnormal. And that is absolutely critical. And I saw one video of yours that you shared on social media where your um, your lambs were playing and, you know, what would they jump or how do you? Yes, so they do. Yes, they do. They jump and they, they, we call it gambling. Lambs will gamble, which means they just sort of jump in the air for no reason. They're not doing anything particular. They're jump, jumping because they have four legs. And they're, they're training just their bones, I guess. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I think so. And then they'll suddenly take off all around the field in a group and have what we call lamb races. So every, every day at around the same time, they will, all of them suddenly, all charge off all around the field together, which is wonderful and very funny to watch. And the mothers just stand there and go, oh, dear, there they go again. <laughs> they're being silly. <laughs> yes. <again. laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. But uh, they're very, uh, very entertaining to watch. Yeah. And that also brings me to my uh, next and last question of today. Um, so you are quite active on social media. And I love that you share, you know, background stories. You also share when you have a bad day or if you're difficult day and you explain things and and you also said earlier that brands are interested you know in connecting with growers um so what do you think can we do to you know help growers connect more with retailers or what needs to be done more i think it's it's difficult for two reasons uh one is geography If you're talking about connecting, say, flocks in Australia to brands in Europe, it can be done and it has been done, but it is much more challenging than connecting flocks in Europe to European growers because of the geography. We're much closer. But I don't think that should be seen as an insurmountable barrier. You've just mentioned social media. Well, we've got that. You can have lamb cams, you can have video diaries of everything that's going on on the farm. You can really make that connection between what's going on on the farm and the retail brand. The difficulty really is getting the wool from that individual farm in Australia to a retailer and making that individual brand connection. They have a much more structured wool selling system, obviously, in Australia for Merino. I don't have any of that because I'm outside the UK system. I'm unique. I'm on my own. So I have to do all of my own chain building right the way through. 
which is great in some ways and very hard work in others, but it does mean I'm free to work directly with a retailer. If you're in Australia, you've got the distance, you've got the brokerage system, which works very well for most growers, but if you want to work direct with a retailer, that's a little bit of a, a stumbling block in your way. You have to bypass that and arrange everything for yourself, and it's quite tricky. So I don't think there's an easy answer. Perhaps the best thing is just to see what somebody else has done and then do it the same way, if possible. But that also adds an additional you know, time in your day. I mean, I'm sure taking care of 300 sheep or in some yeah. girls have you know, much, much bigger flocks yeah. is already consuming most of your day. Yeah. And then do you, but do you do find time or when do you do your communications? Well, uh, mainly very early in the morning. I'm a very early riser. Mm -hmm. So that's not a problem for me. And uh, there's always a minute in the day when something's happened that you can make a note of. I mean, for example, if I'm out in the fields and I take a beautiful photograph of something or the sheep are doing something very interesting, it takes seconds just to put that up on Twitter. Uh, and a LinkedIn post takes more time, but usually I have something important to say and I'll find time to say it. So you mustn't let it take over your life, which it can do, but if you set aside a few minutes a day to do it, it's good. And it keeps you in touch with your customers, with your retailers and with brands who might be thinking of doing something similar. Well, and we will, of course, also link to your website in the show notes and make sure people can connect with you. Although, unfortunately, at the moment, we don't have any more wool left to sell. <laughs> But, uh, otherwise, there's a lot to learn from you and just to follow what you're doing. I think you're doing a wonderful job. So thank, thank you for you. that. And also thank, thank you. you for your time today. I appreciate it. And yeah, I hope to talk to you soon or in, when the coronavirus somehow lets us go, then we can hopefully also see each other again. Great. I look forward to it, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you and bye-bye. Bye. Hey, I do hope you enjoyed my little talk with Leslie. I thought she had a lot of interesting things to share and I really appreciate that we, she allowed us to go in such depth in some of the topics especially about animal welfare if you want to find out more about leslie then head on over to the show notes at elizabethvandelden.com forward slash 115 and there i will link to all the different websites and social media accounts that leslie operates and you can read more about her there i do hope you enjoyed this episode and that you will join us again in around two weeks time until now until then Thanks for listening and bye for now. You are being recorded. <laughs> I think I worked that out. <laughs> yes. No secrets now. No. Okay. <laughs>